Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Decent People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lysing, and today uh, we've got a Beltway Insider on the show, Kristen Smith is the executive director of the Blockchain Association, which, uh, whose members are who's who of um, Web3 investment firms and, and exchanges and companies. Um, and Kristen is doing the Lord's work in Washington, D.C. for uh, crypto in terms of lobbying and making sure that no crazy legislation gets unnoticed. Um, Kristen, how are you? Thank you so much for being here. I'm great. I'm super excited to chat today because there's certainly a lot of good stuff happening in DC. Yeah, always. It seems to be always the case. Um, I noticed when I was looking up, doing a little research on you, uh, on your LinkedIn page, you have a banner that says crypto here for good. Um, I like the double entendre of that. Um, first of all, cryptos is here. It can be a positive force in the world. And then also that it's not going anywhere. Uh, which are two sentiments that I really believe in. Uh, so I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, we can credit uh, Sarah Milby on our team. She actually, that came to her in a dream, believe it or not. And oh, yeah. we use it quite a bit now because, you know, I think, uh, especially in a Washington audience, for a long time, there was a certain set of policymakers who had not gotten very deep um, into what these networks can do. And, and they really thought that this was a passing fad, that this was not something that was going to stay. But obviously, you know, we're rebuilding our entire internet infrastructure. We're rebuilding financial services. Like this is the, these, you know, crypto assets and the tokens that run using crypto assets are here. And that, you know, they're with, with the occasional exception, because there are, you know, sort of bad guys everywhere, but for the most part, this is something that is a force for good. And so, um, so yeah, we thought it was 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 good to, to try to get that across to our DC audience. Yeah, I love messages that comes in, come in dreams too. That's always great. Um, yeah. And yeah, I've been covering the space since 2015. And th there were periods where talking about the longevity, you know, even I was sort of like, not quite sure that this that we were going to make it maybe out of like the 2018 era when things just really seemed to crash. But, uh, you know, ever since then, I think things are just getting more and more interesting. And, and it, I, I agree that crypto is definitely not going anywhere. Um, but we, we'll get to that. But I, I'd love to like, go back and dive into a little bit of your history and, and where you came from and, and how you got into crypto in the first place. Um, wh where were you born and, and where were you raised? Yeah, no, I was born and raised in California, and then I came out to Washington, D.C. to go to college and wasn't intending to get into the world of politics or policy, but it's kind of hard to avoid uh, when you're in Washington. And, and I got sucked in and ended up working for about 10 years on Capitol Hill uh, for a couple different senators and a congressman um, and did a lot of work back then actually on Internet policy. So I was super interested as we were sort of shifting from web one to web two as you know as to how that sort of works and what, what are the right policies that we need in that space and then 
um, you know, kind of got away from that for a while, uh, went into multi-client lobbying as, as many, uh, many a staffer who leaves Capitol Hill does, and um, was kind of pulled in a bunch of different directions for a bunch of different clients I was assigned to, but, but really um, got into the work I did for one client, uh, Overstock actually, uh, who, who had early on accepted Bitcoin as payment and were very eager uh, to invest in this space. And so it was really because of them that I went down, you know, my own personal rabbit hole, like all of us who, who joined this space. And I, I realized that this was what was interesting to me. It reminded me of my early days working on internet policy. And so I started looking for opportunities to do this on a full-time basis and was fortunate enough to bump into a group of companies that were looking to bring a trade association together. So I feel like it was a little bit of, uh, a little bit of luck and a little bit of um, trying to identify something I want and those factors merged and um, here we are today. Yeah. Yeah. Preston Byrne at Overstock is one of the more interesting folks you'll come across in the space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, where in California did you grow up? Um, I went to middle school and high school in Palos Verdes, so just south of LA. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, and were you like publicly or public policy focused as a kid, or what? What was your? No, I um, I actually then? majored uh, in undergrad in biology. I, I was very interested in what I thought was sort of like a hard science that was very like sort of truth based and fact based, and um, I. Uh, uh, just, yeah, sort of got drawn out of that. And I regret those two semesters of organic chemistry I took because those <laughs> hours of my life I'll never get back. That's totally useless. But, um, but uh, no, I, I um, uh, yeah, I was always interested in kind of the way the world worked. And, and I think it's funny. It's, um, I think knowing my personality, you know, when I went to college over 20 years ago now, there weren't a lot of women in computer science. I think I actually would have majored in computer science had I understood what it was. And then I um, I think I would have been very good at that. I just, it was something that never crossed my mind. And so um, ended up in, in biology instead. Yeah. But, um, when I think of Palos Verdes, I always think of, um, do, do you remember the, sh the movie or the book, um, The Falcon and the Snowman? No, were, no, I don't know it. There were two um, teenage kids from Palos Verdes who became spies for uh, the USSR. Oh, how cool. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. not cool, but um, um, no, I should check that out. Yeah, yeah, it's a crazy story. It's, it's, it's quite a while ago, of course, but um, that, that's something that always uh, just pops into my head when I think of Palos Verdes. Um, were, were your mom and dad into science or public policy or anything? Yeah, my dad, um, my dad was a doctor. Um, my mom, uh, is a, it was a stay-at-home mom and she um, but she was very into politics and policy and she would listen to talk radio all the time and had very uh, sort of strong opinions on any issue in any news and so she she spoke about that all the time you know over breakfast uh, you know <laughs> the state of the world and so I, I do think I did get some background from her on that. Yeah I remember my dad would have me read the lead article in the LA Times every morning and then we'd talk about it so. Um, yeah was... yeah I mean it's it's those things matter right I mean that's how you get to understand the world around you as simple as just reading the front page of the newspaper. Yeah yeah it's a shame that we don't have them anymore really in that <laughs> form. Um, so into college for um, uh, for marine biology but then you took a turn into more like then you went to DC and that that's sort of when yeah things... no I came to DC for college and so I while I was in school I started uh, interning on Capitol Hill and um, I was actually on the hill during September 11th which was 
you know, a very sort of powerful um, day. And, you know, I sort of felt really optimistic at that time about government and wanting to be a part of the process. And um, so, yeah, I started uh, when I graduated, I, I, I started there full time and um, haven't really turned back since. What was that like being in the Capitol on September 11th? That must have been pretty scary. Yeah, it was. I mean, in, in retrospect, it was like incredibly terrifying. Um, uh, you know, at the time, there was a lot of confusion. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I didn't even have a cell phone back then. Yeah. Uh, you know, we sort of all just like left uh, left the Capitol and, and we're hanging out in townhouses on, on the hill. And, you know, they shut down the metro and everything. And there was worries that nobody would be able to get home. And you couldn't drive because all the streets were blocked. And it was a real feeling of, of being trapped. But... Um, you know, also sort of this moment of camaraderie with the people I was working with. And um, it's probably one of the reasons today I feel like my coworkers and my family um, <laughs> feel very attached to them uh, when we're, you know, you're building and working towards the same goal. It's, it's um, you know, you can, you can, can become very close and, and care very much about the people you spend time with. Yeah. You were saying at that point in your life, you felt that politics had really a, a, a positive role in the world. Like, did, did that change? Well, <laughs> Everybody does. Um, no, listen, I think um, I think what I learned over time and I think what informs what we do today at the Blockchain Association, which is work to change public policy, and there, there are many steps involved in that process, is um, that this is not, you know, some magical black box where one day, you know, a new policy is made. There's a process that leads up to that. And there's also politics that inform whether or not that progress is made or something can be stalled. It's it's um, there's sort of an ecosystem. There, there's a set of pieces that need to be put in place. And I think what's been really fun about this job at the Blockchain Association is, you know, we essentially started from a totally blank slate. Like they they hired me, they handed me a website and they handed me 10 member companies and a bank account that had some dues money in it. And they said, you know, go build this. And so you have to think about like, what are the steps that you need in order to influence outcomes? And, um, you know, there's a lot of pieces to that. So like one is you actually have to have ideas about what the policy should be. Mm -hmm. And that's not like a super easy thing to do, particularly for a very fast moving industry that's brand new right like there's not like off the shelf solutions like you might have one with energy policy or healthcare policy or something like that and so you know that's led over time to the creation of our policy team which are a super smart set of people um, headed by jake trevinsky that um you know come up with the positions by working with our member companies on those positions so um, so that's one piece of it. Um, I would say another piece is you need to have relationships with people in government. And, you know, that's, again, not a thing of luck. There are professionals in this world who are whose entire job it is, is to know the members of a certain committee or of a certain agency. And so you have to build out a team that has those relationships. Um, you know, you also have to build out messaging and you know there's communications professionals that like specialize in policy communications and running campaigns and strategies so you need to have you know that piece of functionality um and then you also need to bring the industry together which it's um you're not going to get anything done if there's a bunch of different proposals that individual like 
pieces of an industry are pushing, like really what you need is to coalesce everybody behind one ask and one message. And that process takes time, but it also takes an initial commitment of organizations to come together and say, hey, like, let's work on this together and let's do it right. And so, so it's a process. So I think what I, I sort of learned from that time is that what, when I initially, going back to your original question, when I initially showed up, I thought, oh, it's all of these sort of smart, powerful people, and they're doing all this sort of magical things that create policy when when it, it's not magic. It's just a process like anything that can break down into its parts and you need to combine the right pieces and uh, you need to stay at it. And there's a lot of work and it's sometimes a lot of dull and boring work. But, you know, it's um, I, I think we're on a good path uh, to getting more professionals into this space you know, at the association or or within individual companies. And as long as we keep continuing to move forward in unison, I think we're going to get some good outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. Crafting legislation. It's not magic. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned your time as a staffer on the Hill, but um, I, I believe you're with Conrad Burns. Uh, he was the uh, Republican senator from Montana and then Olympia Snow, also yeah. Republican senator from Maine. Uh, and then some time in the House with um, Danny Reber's, who was also a Republican rep from Montana. Um, those all struck me as sort of like centrist Republicans that used to exist. Uh, yeah. and, and would you agree? And how do you think that helped develop your sort of um, sensibility as you're going about this now? Um, and then do you, do you recognize the Republican Party of today compared to where those folks were coming from? Yeah, no, I think when I, you know, was sort of growing up as a young adult on Capitol Hill, um, I did work for more middle of the road members that, you know, understood that there was a role for government and that, you know, it can be a tool to achieve outcomes, but also, you know, you want to balance that with, you know, sort of the free market and, and I think particularly Olympia Snow, she was, you know, the most moderate of anyone I worked for. But she was very powerful because she would reach across the aisle and and create a deal. And and Conrad Burns as well. I actually passed more. I worked on more bills that were signed into law as a very junior staffer because things moved a lot quicker back then. And I think there were many reasons for that. One, it wasn't as you know the environment wasn't as as uh, extreme as it is today. But you know people spoke to one another. They would sit down and share meals together across the aisle or they would there would be all these trips that senators or members of congress would go on and they'd bring their spouses and they would go with members across the aisle and people were genuinely like friends with one another and there was sort of this respect there i think what happened over time is you had so much attention with you know what used to be the 24-hour news cycle that turned into sort of twitter and social media and otherwise and there just isn't the flexibility to build those types of friendships and relationships. They also changed a lot of the ethics rules, which made it more difficult for third parties to come in and sponsor meals or travel or things of that nature. And, and it sort of lost the like human personal touch that was there. Um, but it did lead me to, to learn that the policies that stay are those that are actually bipartisan. When you have a compromise between Republicans and Democrats and that gets signed into law, that tends to stay like if you look at like the 1996 telecom act like that's been in place for a while if you kind of look at something like net neutrality for example that was something i worked on with senator snow where she was sort of the only republican with a bunch of democrats depending on the administration that policy like comes or goes there's constantly like legal litigation things of that nature like what lasts and what what 
you know, is sustainable is bipartisan. And I think with crypto, it's actually one of the very few issues right now that is bipartisan. And so what we're trying to do is make sure we, you know, cultivate champions on the Democratic side, including on the progressive wing, and pair that with what are often sort of, you know, libertarian type Republicans and bring them together to discuss and debate policy ideas. Because I do think at some point we are going to need some public policy changes enacted. Um, I think, you know, people can get by for now, but but in the long run, people want to see spot market regulation. We're going to probably have some um, legislation related to DeFi at some point, because when you have no intermediary, you know, that's something that ultimately is going to have to be addressed. We want that to be done by a bipartisan group so that we have actual certainty that we can live with that's balanced and not something that's going to be challenged going forward. So I think that was something that I learned in my early days, um, you know, working on the hell and that that I'm able to to take with me to this job today. Yeah. Well, given the sort of by or the very partisan nature of today, you, I get it that you're saying we need to bring people together on both sides. Um, how, how would you say you're doing in that um, regard? I think we're making progress. Um, if you asked me a year ago, I would say we are not doing very well. Yeah. Um, but I think this past year, um, for a combination of reasons, is really one that's um, brought more Democratic champions to the table. Um, I think part of the reason is because for the first time, there is an understanding among Congress that you know crypto is here for good, right? That that there are a lot of people working and building in their districts that care about these issues, and that they at the very least need to be open-minded to learning about it, right? That's a big shift from before. Um, but we're also seeing, like, if you look in the Senate, we have uh, Senators Gillibrand and Booker that are getting excited. You have Joe Biden, the Democratic President of the United States, who did an executive order saying it's important for the United States to be leading digital asset innovation. I mean, that's huge, right? You have yeah. Secretary Yellen who could have, you know, demanded to like ban transactions with self-hosted wallets, stand up and give like a nice speech where she laid out some perfectly reasonable public policy goals. And so, you know, we've, we've really sort of isolated the opposition to just a couple places, you know, most notably, I think Elizabeth Warren in the Senate, maybe Brad Sherman in the House, and you know how much longer he's going to hold his position of power there and then you know you have a lot of questions coming from gary gensler at the sec so those are sort of like the three pocket areas um of, of opposition but for the most part the rest of congress at the very least is in the crypto curious phase which is which is fine as once they get to know how this actually works and what it can do we can usually convert them to become champion. So it takes a while, but but I think that we'll continue to get bipartisan support. Yeah, uh, and here in California last week, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom put out an executive order, um, you know, kind of encouraging the state to be, at, you know, an innovation hub and and accept like and embrace digital assets um, here in California. Um, you mentioned Gary Gensler. I, I've long thought that um, the, um, you know, uh, the Exchange Act of the, in the 1930s is just not the right vehicle for digital assets and that Congress needs to write new legislation. Do, do you think that's a reality? Like, is that doable in this in this environment? Or is that like a three to five year term goal? I think it's like a two to four year journey, mm -hmm. um, maybe five. Um, 
you know, I think we're seeing, yeah, I, I agree, right? The SEC is in place to deal with information asymmetry between investors and um, uh, and companies, right? Um, and there's a lot of disclosure involved. And then of course they, they oversee the markets uh, for the trading of those assets. Um, crypto assets, you know, require a different kind of information, right? I mean, the health of the little entity that employs a handful of developers that help to launch a product has no bearing on whether or not that network is going to be successful, right? Like there's a whole community ultimately that that has ownership over that. And, you, you know, it matters how many nodes are on the network or how many developers are building on the network. It doesn't matter what like the balance sheet is of whatever you know, Acme Labs that produce the project, right? And so, so that that's an issue. Um, you know, I think if we're looking at market regulators, uh, the CFTC doesn't have jurisdiction over commodity spot markets today, but they have a lot of regulation for very fast moving, um, you know, electronic markets that that they might be better suited for that kind of a task. And so we're seeing a lot of debate going on. We saw introduction of legislation in the House called the Digital Commodity Exchange Act that would expand the jurisdiction of the CFTC to take on this type of role. I mean, the real challenge is, unless it turns out that all of these crypto assets are indeed securities, which I think we have major issue with as an industry, then there is no federal regulator for these markets. There's no state regulator for these markets, right? There's money transmitter licenses, but that doesn't deal with, with surveillance of the markets. And so we really do need something new passed. And I think that, um, you know, that is probably gonna be the major focus of, of the industry ahead. And I think that, you know, today there's, as you well know, there's always been this debate over our tokens, you know, commodities, are they securities? Like, what do we do? I think a lot of the fear or a lot of the reason that's such an issue is because if you're a commodity, there's no regulation and if you're security, there's a lot of regulation. I think if we provide reasonable regulation on the commodity side, then that debate becomes a lot easier because they're going to be regulated either way. Yeah. And it's just a, we can have a more informed discussion about that without having such high consequences as to what the classification is. Yeah, I think, What's so fascinating here is that in, in it's certainly in terms of smart contracts and Ethereum and other um, similar protocols, it's it's programmable money. And so you've got this thing, you, you can have a protocol, but it's got an embedded economic function to it, which we have never seen before. You know, right. it, it's and so of course Congress is going to have to grapple with it and the regulators are going to have to grapple with it. Um, I was wondering, so obviously you represent now somewhere around 80 members. Um, and, you know, we hear a lot about what Congress doesn't know um, and how the learning curve is there and, and things like that. But I'm curious, from your members, what, what have you had to teach them about <laughs> the, the political process and, and going up onto the Hill? Yeah, no, so we, we, uh, we now have 91 member companies. Um, I don't think we've uh, posted the last round uh, to the website yet, but stay tuned. Um, Just made some news. And, you know, it's interesting. There's, there's a... Um, there's a range of experience, right? I mean, a lot of these companies have brought on very thoughtful people who have, you know, either come from the financial services world or the tech world, and they've dealt with regulation in the past, they've dealt with government relations in the past. Um, but it, it, there has been a, a delay in getting that in place, right? I mean, I think that the um, 
you know, sort of foundational, particularly in the Bitcoin world, right? Like this is a very libertarian thing that doesn't want to engage with government. But the reality is like that you have to engage with government or you're not going to get good outcomes. And if you do engage, you can make progress. It just takes time. And and the earlier you can get into that cycle, the more you can form opinions and be a resource and a partner in developing those policies. Um, so, you know, I've had to explain to some members very basic things, starting from you really need to hire a general counsel or <laughs> uh, advanced things like, hey, you know, you guys are ready to you're big enough, you have enough resources, you should open a Washington office, you should get your own team on the ground that we can coordinate with and help expand the number of people that are working in this space. Um, it's funny, it's very popular in crypto to hire like a head of policy. Like I don't experience other industries that think like that, like, you know, other industries hire like, heads of government relations, because they know that at the end of the day, that's what you need. But there is a lot of thinking that does need to be done on the policy side. So I think just getting more people hired and involved is important. Um, the other one, which is, you know, a little bit related to my day job is is trying to convince them that it's a good thing to engage politically, right? If there's a candidate that they like that's supporting crypto, you should support that candidate because then the odds of them getting into power, uh, you know, and being being a friend down the road are, are better. And so having those, you know, using political giving as a tool for building relationships, I think, is um, a message we're, we're slowly starting to get through to our members as well. Yeah, I know. I think Erica Rhodes out here in LA is going up against Brad Sherman, but um... I think Sherman's pretty well entrenched in the SoCal Democratic scene. Uh, he's been around for a while. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, quite powerful. Um, and then, so when you're going, like, and, and also I would imagine talking to your members, it's like, you should just get to know the staffers, right? Like, here are the basics. Like, the, the staffers do, like, a lion's share of the work. Right. Yeah, and you don't need to start by sitting down with the senator. Like, you can have yeah. just as much effect speaking with the staff and we've had situations where you know the member is actually interested in this and might be open to it but the staffer is the block right because they have their own opinion that might be different and so you need both but it really starts with the staff because the staff is the one writing the memos providing the recommendations yeah. uh, and you know a member of Congress, like think of, imagine all the issues that they have to think about in any given day. And so starting with the staff is a really good place to start. Plus we've noticed a real big sort of difference in, you know, the, our, our ability to get through to someone about how this works is like directly correlated to age, right? Like the younger you are, like the better you're gonna understand this, the older you are, um, you know, the, the longer it takes. And so dealing with the staff who tend to be younger is, is often a good place to start for that reason as well. Yeah, I've, I've been having phone calls with my dad who's 82 and he's now finally getting his head around blockchain. He's, he's a really smart guy, but uh, <laughs> it's taken a long time. <laughs> um, so one of the issues you guys are working on is in New York State, they're considering yeah. a bill that would basically ban proof of work mining. Um, how is that going and where, where do you think that, uh, I, I would assume that you think that got off the rails at some point. And I'm curious, like, how do you think that happened? Yeah, no, so we, we think, well, there's a couple things. Um, you know, I think that the, the legislation kind of comes from a place of misunderstanding the crypto world, but also misunderstanding um, 
the, the positive benefits that Bitcoin mining and proof of work mining have for um, uh, have for the deployment of renewable resources. There, there, there's a lot of Bitcoin mining in New York today because they have all this hydropower upstate. It's relatively cheap. It's uh, you know energy that would otherwise be lost. Why don't you capture and create value out of it? So it's been a great job generator for New York. So you know I think it's completely fair to have a discussion about Bitcoin's energy use. It's going to use energy. That's not going to change. Um, and we can talk about the energy mix that goes in to, to feed that demand. Like that's a conversation worth having. Um, but to target and only have that conversation for Bitcoin mining and not other aspects of our economy, it's really just targeting crypto to be anti-crypto. Um, you know, New York is a challenging state to begin with, right? They're the only state that has a special bit license uh, to do business. And if you're a resident of New York today, there are a lot of services and a lot of tokens that you don't have access to. And so if you combine the bit license with the fact that now we might have a, a, a moratorium on, on Bitcoin mining, the combination of those really makes one think twice about headquartering in New York. Now, maybe this is good for other states because there are a lot of states that are attracting mining. There are a lot of states that are uh, trying to court crypto companies to headquarter there, but it has a really negative effect, not just for Bitcoin, but really for the entire crypto industry. Uh, the good news I'd say is um, we've had some really productive conversations. I mean, we're certainly not out of the woods yet, um, but you know we want to make sure that we're going to continue to put the pressure on, continue to to do meetings to educate people, and you know I think the the right step at this time is to maybe study the issue and let's think about a more productive way that isn't going to drive these jobs out of New York. I mean, mining is going to happen; it's going to happen somewhere. The jobs are going to happen somewhere, and it's just really you know, and be ashamed to have what is currently the finance capital of the world be, you know, not participate in, in this next revolution. So, yeah, yeah we're, I'm, I'm, I think things are starting to look a little bit better there, but we're, we're certainly not out of the woods yet. You mentioned the different states, and I'm wondering, um, because, you know, take Montana or Texas or Florida, you know, California, different places are taking different approaches. Is that something you guys would be encouraging um, to, to sort of like, you know, allow all these different ideas to kind of compete with each other? Or is that getting too fragmented and you'd rather have like a federal sort of over you know, structure here about it to keep it sort of like, you know, when you have to get a money transmitter license, you have to go to every state and it's kind of a pain in the neck. I, I, how does that, how do you guys think about that in terms of the states versus the federal? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think having a federal option um, would be uh, very productive because there's a lot of time and money uh, that goes into getting these applications. And then there are visits and examinations from all of these different agencies, all for kind of the same activity, right? And so there's a lot of redundancy there. Um, that being said, I think the states have also been really good laboratories. And so, you know, from our perspective, I think having some sort of alternative option is there. Um, this is something that's come up, particularly in the context of stablecoin regulation for dollar-backed stablecoins. And there are some proposals. Uh, my favorite one is Senator Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania that preserves the state money transmitter license option, but also provides um, like a federal banking option. And so you can kind of pick or choose which one you know might be appropriate there. And so I think having ideas that have different options um, is, is probably the best outcome, just like 
you know, with banks, we have a, a dual banking system where you can be a state chartered bank or a federally chartered bank. So I think that, um, you know, a competition is a good thing and competition among governments is also a good thing because it just provides for, for more, more regulatory options and, and more um, innovation around the West, best way to, to do that regulation. Do you think um, in the stablecoin area, do you think the, the government itself will ever issue a digital dollar? Um, I, I used to think that that would be a no brainer, but then thinking about it more deeply, that raises some serious privacy concerns because obviously there would be a blockchain element to it and your transactions are all recorded and the government could potentially know what you're spending your money on. Um, so I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. And if, if you think that that's gonna mean it's always gonna be sort of in a private sector sense. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at what China's doing, that's the exact thing we don't want, right? We don't want the government peering into every transaction that we make. Um, what we do um, want is for individuals to be able to access financial services and make transactions in a near instantaneous way in 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, in small amounts or large amounts. Um, and the private sector has largely stepped in to do that. Um, so what I think is interesting is if you think about the steps that the government would have to take to come around design choices for what a digital dollar might look like, plus do a competitive process, select a vendor, create it, that's so many years down the road that I think the world is going to look a lot different than it is today. And it might be more obvious that that's not needed if other financial services adopt the stablecoin rails that are being put in place, whether it be a dollar back stablecoin or algorithmic or otherwise. Um, I think that there is going to be a ton of innovation. If you, I mean, if you look at where we are today compared to five years ago, where we're going to be in five years compared to today, I don't think any of us can actually imagine that. And so I think, you know, I think it's good for the government to think about these things and ask these questions. And maybe there will be a compelling reason why they decide they need one at the retail level. Um, at the wholesale level, we already sort of have a digital currency there. And so I, I think, you know, asking these questions and, and having open discussion and debate is a good thing. Whether or not they should move forward, I think is an open question though, and, and um, is one of the reasons why it's worthy of the debate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just to, to wrap up, I know we've talked a little bit about the future. It sounds like you're more optimistic than pessimistic than you would have been 12 months ago. Um, yeah. What do you see, uh, first of all, what do you see as the, the major short-term sort of goals that you have with the association in, in terms of, you know, kind of getting your message across and, and, and hopefully, you know, making sure that legislation that comes about is, is, is thoughtful? Yeah, no, I think in the short-term, as an association right now, we have two key priorities. We wanna stop the bill in New York, because if we stop the, the Bitcoin mining moratorium there, that will prevent other states from doing the same thing. And so I think it's important for the industry to have a tangible win. I mean, we, we sort of won back during the infrastructure bill in August, but you know, at the end of the day, we didn't actually get the language changed. We just got it narrowed through conversations and what they call a colloquy on, on the Senate floor. What, what we really need is to have a win to show that all of the pieces are in place and we're an effective industry and that, that you know, we know how to run a good campaign. Um, the other thing that we're working on that I think is hugely important is we need the industry to coalesce around a solution. We need to come to the table 
with an actual plan and say, all right, we have all discussed this, we've all talked about it. Here's our proposal for how we think regulation, particularly around the spot markets, um, could you know could work it's something that will protect consumers but that's also like not going to kill crypto right and so there that that's like easier said than done um one it's just a, a space that requires a lot of very sort of technical legal thought and analysis uh, but two you got to get a bunch of different players on the same page and so that's something that we're spending a lot of time thinking through and working on uh, it's not ready yet it's probably not going to be ready anytime soon but I think if we can come together with what we want, then the, pol the politics are there. The, the industry is on a path politically because largely of the ecosystem of users that are out there that, that we'll be able to push something like that through. We first have to know what we want though. And that, that I think is the biggest challenge that, that's outstanding. Yeah, that's gotta be challenging because your members include investors to like, you know, design studios to, uh, you know, yeah decentralized exchanges and, and it just runs the gamut well and even exchanges like centralized exchanges themselves have very different opinions on this <laughs> we kind of we yeah gotta... i noticed um i didn't see coinbase or gemini uh, among your membership is that i know gemini is sort of doing its own thing yeah uh, gemini's from more or less always done their own thing um coinbase was actually like the first member to ever leave the association um because they too tend to be fairly independent. And so yeah. great dialogue. They've, they've hired um, in just the past year, a really phenomenal team on the ground in DC. We work very closely with them. Um, but yeah, they're, they're a little bit more independent as well. Yeah. Um, one thing I've written about a little that I wanted to ask you is there was a very small change um, in the tax code to about, um, you know, it's, it's sort of like when you, uh, send a certain amount of cash, you have to report it to the government. Um, and, and they were trying to apply this to, to digital assets. And they were, I, I guess the way it was written is that uh, if I'm remem remembering correctly, if you received the, the funds, you'd have to tell the government who sent them to you. And it just seemed like hugely problematic. And I believe that actually passed in the bill. Yeah, no, there were several provisions in this infrastructure bill last summer. Um, there, a lot of them have not been enacted yet. Uh, there's there's going to be, we believe, an open rulemaking process that will provide for. That some, would be a treasury, right? Uh, yes, within a combination of treasury and, and the IRS, uh, which is which is part of the Treasury Department. Um, they, um, yeah, no, there, there's some open work to do there. Um, you know, there is a question around, you know, sort of reporting on other people's activity and, and who's who has obligations to do that and who doesn't. You know, I think it's very clear for somebody like a Coinbase, uh, you know, to send a 1099 at the end of the year. Um, and the details of that need to be worked out, right? Because it's not the same as other types of 1099s. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's there's a lot of, a lot of work, um, but there are a lot of smart uh, crypto tax professionals, and, and actually there's a very small group of them. <laughs> there's not a lot of people that have this specialty, but yeah. there is a small group that's doing a lot of thinking. And, and I think we can get all of that in a good spot, but yeah, there, there's, a, there's a lot of open work um, going on at the regulatory level on that front right now. Yeah, yeah, it gets really sticky if you think, well, I'm actually receiving these funds from a smart contract, so <laughs> how do right. I- Right, like, is a smart contract gonna send something to the IRS? They don't yeah. give you a security number to that. <laughs> like it just isn't- it's a bunch of code, right, right. So um, one of the things I love that you mentioned is sort of like how crypto just doesn't wait for anybody. It just keeps going and does what it does. Um, 
And I, I find that really remarkable. In that vein, like what, what are you excited about? What, what do you think, you know, what's, what are you op most optimistic about here in the short term? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm I'm actually super optimistic about dollar-backed stablecoins. I know that that's very simple and not even to some people pure crypto, but I think having um, the integration of these stablecoins into traditional payment services is is really going to be a game changer. Um, the other one that's been just a phenomenal educational tool with policymakers has been NFTs, and I know for those of us in the market, the market is down. Uh, you know, there's there's some concerns, but from a policymaker perspective, they're like, what is this cool thing that you can do online? And it's a great way to teach about digital scarcity. And um, it's 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 weirdly, it's probably our number one most requested uh, meeting is to talk about what an NFT is. And, and there's a tremendous amount of interest right there. So yeah, but beyond that, um, you know, I think as more and more of these use cases come online, particularly around rebuilding the internet, um, having kind of more consumer choice, more control over your data, I think as, as those start to become more available and mainstream, then the power of what this stuff is really gonna sink in with policymakers and, and it will help us advance the policies that we need down the road. Yeah, that's a great point about the stable coin because the reality is it's very easy to um, digitize securities like a treasury bond or anything like that it's it's but then to have that make any sense you need the payment to be digital as well which has been kind of the, the stumbling block um so well um Kristen, this has been wonderful thank you so much for the time and your insights and um good luck with everything in dc uh like i said you're doing the lord's work so uh may it long continue well thanks matt this, this has been great talking to you yeah Take care. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decential.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L dot I-O. And on Twitter at Decential. Have a great day.